Dharma Punks New York, welcome. Thanks for stopping by. If you'd like to support your friendly Buddhist pastor, I do everything entirely by donations only, never a charge. The Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC, and the PayPal is on the Dharma Punks website, as is the Patreon, which is dharmapunksnyc.com. Thanks. So thanks for that. The next in-person will be the first Tuesday of November at Grand Street Healing at 7 o'clock. So if you're in New York during the first Tuesday of November, please stop by and join us. So there's a classic view of addiction or uh, image that comes to mind of an individual who's experienced uh, an array of adverse childhood experiences, develops chronic hypervigilance and intrusive memories of abuse, and then seeks substances like drugs and alcohol to numb so that they no longer feel the states of unease, the complex PTSD or the intrusive memories, the most pathological outcomes where people no longer can work or sustain relationships and wind up hospitalized. But if that's the way we narrowly define addictive behaviors, it overlooks the widespread presence of compulsive addictive cycles in common pleasures that can be consumed by some people in healthy ways, but by others can become obsessive and almost pathological in the reliance. So for example, some people can snack at night, have a cookie while others binge eat. Some people can enjoy Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube for a short period and then put it aside without becoming compulsive, engaging with it for hours. Some people can engage in online shopping or online dating without reaching a level of fixation where they feel uncomfortable if they're not on those apps. And even socially laudatory activities that people think highly of for instance, exercise, can turn into compulsive behaviors that when people eventually can't stop returning to these these routines. What happens is uh, there's the hunt, the anticipatory wait for a payoff, and then the withdrawal to a neutral state that feels less and less satisfying. People begin to feel restless and irritable when they're not engaged in their compulsion. When they're not engaged with the eating, scrolling through Instagram or TikTok or YouTube or online shopping or online dating or checking the stock market or exercising or whatever, they feel uncomfortable. And then there's other hints of addiction. As we'll see, people's lives get smaller. They rely less on other people for emotional regulation. They go more to the behavior whenever they feel uncomfortable. So compulsive automatic pleasure seeking becomes a way to overregulate our emotions rather than connecting, co-regulating with others or learning how to soothe ourselves without numbing ourselves via these compulsive behaviors. It should be noted that the Buddha saw addiction as widespread and affecting everyone until they develop 
a spiritual practice or some form of practice that would protect them from the temptations to regulate their emotions by going to some activity with short-term rewards. As we learn to stimulate ourselves out of being bored or lonely, we become less and less resilient to these states, nor do we understand the real needs that, for instance, loneliness is conveying. When we feel lonely, it's not conveying the need for us to go on Instagram or Facebook. It's saying that we need to reach out and connect with real living human beings by finding some form of community or calling up friends and so forth. But the more we rely on social media or any other process behavior like shopping, porn, binge eating, whatever, then we less and less know how to interpret our emotions correctly and act on their behalf. When people do come in from active substance dependence, people who were actively alcohol or drugs, and they get sober, they still feel uncomfortable in their normal states. They quickly transfer their addiction to hunting for sex, compulsive TV watching, etc. Because even though the primary addiction is no longer being indulged in, it shows just how addictive these secondary pleasure-seeking rewards can be. So all of this is due to what is referred to as the dopamine reward pathway. It's an ancient neural network that connects the part of your brain that initiates habitual behaviors, which is called the striatum. And especially within the striatum, it's a region called the nucleus accumbens, which is where an enormous amount of dopamine is stored. Or And when we anticipate a reward, the striatum sends bursts of dopamine forward to the frontal lobe and to motor regions of the brain. And it stimulates us into taking an action, whether it's to gamble or shop, go to a dating app or whatever. Very often, one of the things that stimulates an addictive compulsive behavior is stress, or what we sometimes refer to as allostatic load. The more people feel overwhelmed by life, they're in work that's too demanding, they're in stressful interpersonal dynamics or family systems that are stressful. The predominance of stress, of course, then activates a desire to find a way out. And the most efficient way to do that, the way the brain evolved, was to seek a reward, something that uh, triggers the secretion of dopamine, activities that tend to hijack our dopamine reward system. Now, dopamine in and of itself, when it's secreted in small amounts, is exceedingly healthy. In meditation, we secrete low amounts of dopamine, and that low amount can be sustained for very long periods of time. Also, with task-positive activities that don't produce immediate payoffs, like gardening, cooking, sewing, building something, playing an instrument, working with pottery, etc., anything that you have to engage in for a very long period of time before a reward is produced, is generally a sustainable way to activate the striatum. But 
there are many, many behaviors and activities that, especially in our world, chronically lead to the over secretion of dopamine pleasure, basically the root of all addictive states. Ancient reward dopamine circuits were instilled during the millions of years of insufficient, unreliable food supply, where finding food would take hours of sustained attention, or building a hut would take hours, or finding a, something that could be turned into a tool that would be to our advantage could take hours upon hours. So the surges of dopamine rewards might happen once a day. Unfortunately, this now is completely mismatched with our world. We're inundated with stimuli everywhere that can provide a burst of ongoing over secretion of dopamine without doing any real work for it. For instance, over the course of evolution, bright colors originally indicated fruits packed with vitamins. And so whenever we saw something that was bright uh, colors, that was small, it would hijack our attention and start the secretion of dopamine because it meant that we would um, have found a fruit that would provide us with nutrients and it would taste good. Um, today, we have candy stores everywhere in my neighborhood. There are actually marijuana dispensaries that just have a lot of candy in them. And they're uh, they look for the for our brains, which still haven't evolved out of their evolutionary settings. It lights up the reward um, uh, recept dopamine receptors, and so people can constantly overstimulate do uh, dopamine and a state of reward and pleasure by simply going into a store and buying a bunch of candy or ice cream or whatever. Um, another ancient evolutionary reward was status concerns. We're a tribal species of pack animals, and our social status really mattered throughout much of evolution. If we weren't secure in our tribes, if we got kicked out, we would die. So any um, uh, social status that was accumulated by other people was immensely important to us. It affected our tribal bonds. So today, we're surrounded by a plethora of online images showing our friends on Facebook and Instagram traveling and parties, achieving successes. And it makes it look like everybody is doing brilliantly. And this hijacks they not only the dopamine reward system, but it's it's entrancing because for us uh, the it lights up not just the reward system but the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, which really concerns uh, is concerned with how we uh, how other people are doing in relation to us, and then of course our species had due to evolution mating instincts which can be easily commandeered by um, the plethora of attractive individuals taking selfies with enticing looks. 
And, it, you know, there's just this parade of images that gives the impression that people are um, uh, looking at the user with some kind of seducing agenda. And then, of course, novelty was enormously important to our forebears, our ancestors, because during evolution, new tools or resources could have life or death implications. So today, companies can repackage their technology, their smartphones in slightly different cases and actively trigger our reward system, even though there might not be any difference between an iPhone, I don't know what the, they're up to, uh, iPhone 15 or 16 or 19 or 33 or whatever, um, even though there's no real difference, they'll package it slightly different. And that novelty will stimulate the dopamine reward system. And we can be hypnotized by it and, and rush to a Apple store. Or another thing that was that hijacks our ancient um, uh, evolutionarily installed networks of attention was anything that offered pain relief, analgesic uh, substances. Because one, not only were it very common for our ancestors to be injured without appropriate medical care, but also pain relief, anything that released endorphins would also have attenuated their anxiety about their vulnerability in the world and their losses. So today's plethora of opiates and painkillers hijacks, again, our ancient dopamine reward system. So pretty much our world is absolute, and I didn't even bring up, uh, you know, any so many other ways that our ancient uh, reward systems are absolutely hijacked by the surrounding um, overwhelming supply of pleasure that's just a click away uh, of a mouse on a laptop or a trackpad on a laptop. So stimuli that addresses evolutionary needs plus stress equals obsession equals addiction. We quickly habituate to anything that produces very fast, reliable, available rewards. And this is what the Buddha called Tanha craving. And he said Tanha craving was the source of almost all of our unnecessary suffering. It's why life can be unbearable is our addictive compulsive reliance on short-term pleasures that give us really fast rewards but then ultimately don't alleviate anything so why is it why is this cycle so associated with suffering well one is we quickly habituate to these rewards if you can, anytime you want, go into a pantry and get a cookie, it's no longer going to provide a boost. Pretty sure soon you're going to need three or four cookies and then five or six. And what happens, and this is crucial to understand, overstimulation 
of dopamine receptors downregulates those receptors when they're not being stimulated. In other words, we overstimulate dopamine, then our neutral states become less and less pleasant. We have less and less dopamine present when we're not engaged in our reward activities. So somebody before they started addictively using a dating app would have had a certain baseline level of dopamine, which would keep them protected against depression and irritability. But if they start using a dating app obsessively, then what's going to happen is they'll overstimulate the receptors. It'll take more dopamine to trigger them. So we are going to feel in our normal baseline states, feel restless, irritable, and discontent. The more we stimulate or engage in a repetitive behavior for short-term relief, the more we will feel less comfortable in our skin when we're not engaging in that behavior. And also we'll need more and more and more. A famous study showed how quickly we habituate to dopamine. Um, There was a study that um, a businessman who businessman who got a certain neural reward for making a $10,000 deal, pretty soon they would need to make a $20,000 deal to get the same level of reward. And then pretty soon after that, it was 40,000, 80,000, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, the overstimulation of dopamine receptors makes it harder and harder and harder to feel pleasure. And also it makes our baseline states feel worse. So eventually the single cookie won't do. We'll need four or eight or we'll be binge eating the cookies. We'll be eating pints of ice cream. Or some people who started out watching run-of-the-mill pornography, I suppose, will wind up watching perverse pornography Or some people who started ordering one package at Amazon will now have a stream of packages arriving with rooms crammed with disposable useless Amazon products, and they'll pretty soon be mired in death. And I hear all of these stories, not only in counseling, but also uh in any 12-step meeting you'll get to hear what happens when people transfer their addictions from uh uh drugs or alcohol to compulsive sex shopping gambling uh online activities online dating and so on and so forth so any activity that hijacks our need for attention (laughs) novelty pain reductions sweet flavors, tribal status, can produce rewards that if they're too fast and too predictable, will then trigger withdrawal symptoms. When we don't engage in those behaviors, pretty soon we'll feel anxious, irritable, depressed, discontent. Uh, And it's not just drugs, not just porn shopping, not just online dating, but things that can seem entirely healthy, like exercise or collecting objects or investing money or you name it. Uh, Even fantasizing about the future, ruminating about relationships, 
these also, these images that we conjure up in our minds can also hijack the ancient dopamine reward system and captivate the default mode operation of the brain and as well can become addictive. Um, so diminished dopamine leads to reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex. And in other words, as we need more and more stimuli, most of the time we're just, because we've overstimulated at times dopamine uh, secretion, much of the time our baseline amounts are gonna be reduced. And when that's the case, the prefrontal cortex, which depends on a steady low-level stream of dopamine to pay attention, is going to start experiencing attention deficit states. Activities that are not immediately with rewarding, that don't hijack our dopamine reward systems. Uh, activities like engaging in healthy eating or connecting with friends and supporting people that are in need of help, purposeful work, even those um, activities that uh, used to secrete a, a, a low level but healthy amount of dopamine, like task positive, acti task positive activities such as shopping, not shopping, <laughs> a gardening or cooking or taking a walk in nature or playing a musical instrument or or uh, building something. Now those activities will feel empty and, and unrewarding because we don't have enough dopamine anymore to be secreted. We've completely distorted the entire reward system of the brain. From a neurobiological perspective, Leisure and pain, it should be noted, also share the exact same locations in the brain. The, both the amygdala and the nucleus accumbens, especially the nucleus accumbens is central to it. And this can produce a vacillating relationship, whereas pain decreases, pleasure increases. But as pleasure decreases, as dopamine decreases, our level of discomfort increases. We don't really, uh, you know, evolutionary pressures made sure our amygdalas with negativity bias don't allow us to stay in states of pleasure for very long. Our brains will return to neutral states. But if neutral states no longer feel very good, then we become locked in this obsessive need for some behavior or another. So the Buddha noted that. Um, well, before I get to some of the solutions, um, I just finally want to add uh, that um, the direction of change in the pleasure-pain cycle also matters. If you've been in pain for a very long time and it's followed by a neutral state, that neutral state can feel intoxicating. I experienced this um, one evening, probably about 10 years ago, I had kidney stones and it was at night and there was no access to painkillers and I didn't really want to go to the hospital. So I was in ju just racked with agony for about eight hours. And then I somehow uh, 
in that period just used all of the Buddhist tools I could manage to muster to be with the, the excruciating pain. And then I somehow fell asleep. And when I woke up, the pain was gone. I was back in a neutral state. And I felt overjoyed <laughs> with happiness. The just no longer being in pain was the most intoxicating, enticing, lovely state I could possibly imagine. On the other hand, as we've seen with these um, reward-seeking behaviors, if we're constantly stimulating dopamine and we go back down to neutral, and neutral doesn't even feel very satisfying anymore because we've lowered the amount of baseline dopamine due to the overstimulation, pretty soon just being in our normal day-to-day -day life uh, settings is going to feel really empty and hollow. So in summary, any activity that provides quick, pleasurable payoffs, even exercise, uh, even other health, seemingly healthy behaviors, if we rely on them to regulate our emotions, if we use them um, to a degree where um, we find our lives getting smaller or we are spending hours fixated, engaged with these um, behaviors. We're on what's called a hedonic treadmill, and it's going to lead, lead us subject towards depression and uh, irritable, restless states where we're going to no longer be comfortable in our own skin. And this is why the Buddha didn't um, uh, only consider drugs and alcohol to be intoxicating, but he listed short-term pleasures. Uh, he also listed any routines that we rely on rather than connecting with others, rather than spiritual practice. He even went so far as to note that views and opinions about the world or sitting around thinking about ourselves and what's going to happen to us in the future, all of these are parts of his teaching on the four types of clinging that are at the heart of addiction. So the Buddha saw addiction as endemic to the human condition. And it wasn't really a matter of if, but simply what type of addiction we would choose and how soon we would hit a bottom and then be willing to when there was enough pain to, uh, Buddha said that pain was essentially the touchstone of growth. Uh, dukkha or suffering was what led people to a spiritual path of, of trying to get off this treadmill of constantly seeking short-term rewards. So, I mean, one way to get off the treadmill is simply to wait and stop doing it. <laughs> whatever the addiction is, and then be patient. And over time, the dopamine re receptors will return to their normal function and our baseline levels of dopamine will return to uh, a healthier level. And homeostasis or normal states will feel more and more pleasant. But that's a very uncomfortable process and it can take a very long time. It's essentially going cold turkey <laughs> from whatever it is we've developed a reliance on.
But there's another way, and this is very much at the heart of the spiritual practice. Another way off the treadmill is to raise our serotonin levels. While dopamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter that tells the brain, I feel good, I want more of this. That's what it's telling the brain, give me more. This is not enough, give me more. Um, serotonin is inhibitory. It doesn't stimulate us to action. It actually tells the body, I felt good today. I've had enough. I can stop and relax. Serotonin is sustainable. It takes a lot longer to trigger than simply eating a candy or a, a half pint of ice cream or going on Instagram. It takes uh actual patient activities but once we've raised our serotonin level enough it creates long-lasting feelings of well-being uh being at ease being comfortable in our skin um serotonin can stabilize and slightly even elevate our moods and it eases the states of restlessness and irritability when we're no longer seeking short-term dopamine blasts. So how do we do this? Well, two teachings are important to know, or two insights are important to know, I should say, was that lots and lots of studies show that meditation, uh, one, is a way to return baseline stimulus of dopamine to a healthy level, but it also, if you use appropriate positive images while you meditate, also raises serotonin. Interpersonal connections, being parts of the community, raise serotonin levels. That's why people always recover in community. They don't recover from addictions alone. Um, Another teaching that's very, very important is the Buddha noted in the Paticca Samapada that um, once we start a reward endeavor, the craving hunt for pleasure that leads to addiction or upadana, it's too late. It's too late to stop the process once it's underway. The only way, the only weak link in the chain, the Buddha noted, was when the underlying stress that begins this whole process turns into feelings of dukkha or discomfort in our body, right before it initiates the addictive search for the cookie, the porn, the online shopping, the online dating, the the whatever behavior we've become reliant on. Um, the Buddha noted, if we can stay with that feeling of discomfort, what's known as dukkha vedana, and simply give it a soothing environment where we allow it to arise and pass without allowing ourselves to give into the obsessive desire to get rid of the feeling by consuming something, then we can develop actually a way out of this treadmill. 
in all cases, meditation can be a crucial ingredient, mindful meditation, because in meditation, we learn to observe feelings as they arise without acting on them. We also can visualize images that raise serotonin levels. While we're meditating, we're also secreting a low level of dopamine that keeps us just rewarded enough without overstimulating the receptors. And so what we're going to do in our practice is we're going to put almost all of these tools, uh, we're going to put them all at play, and we're going to see how they work uh, in our practice. So I thank you for listening. I hope that tonight's talk was stimulating in a good way, not in an obsessive way. And uh, what I would like to request is that you find a really comfortable seated position. Um, and it doesn't have to be an upright, rigid one. It can simply be, uh, you could lie down if you want, or you could uh, uh, sit in a couch. And just find that position and close your eyes. And just take a moment to bring your attention to your feet and just feel your feet from the inside. Whether they're resting on the ground, or wherever they are, just feel your feet. And then as you breathe in, clench your toes, tense the muscles in your feet. And then as you breathe out, relax both of your feet, paired muscle relaxation. And now just allow yourself to breathe into feet that no longer hold as much contraction or tension. And if you need to do these practices a couple of times, by all means, tense with the in-breath, release with the out-breath. And now let's go to the calves, both legs. As you breathe in, tense the leg, the calves, and then as you breathe out, release, let go of all the tension. And this then followed this up with just breathing into calves that are no longer holding as much bracing or tightness. Moving up to the thighs, tense the muscles in the thighs as you breathe in. And then as you breathe out, just release 
all the tension there. And then just noting how this area feels as you breathe in and breathe out. And as you breathe in, clutch, clutching, clenching, tightening the buttocks. And then as you breathe out, release any tension there. Bringing your awareness to the abdomen, breathing. As you breathe in, just distend the belly out, make it a very round belly. And then as you breathe out, just relax and let the abdominal muscles settle. And a few breaths into and out of the abdomen, just trying to use the breaths to soften the belly, breathing into a soft, relaxed belly. And continue with the chest as you breathe in, push out, and tighten the muscles of the chest, and then as you Breathe out, just allow the chest to collapse and relax and let all the energy drain out of it. And then continuing this practice with the fists, making fists as you breathe in and then tighten, tighten. And then as you breathe out, just relax your hands so your palms feel really comfortable. And as you breathe in, Tightening the arms, like making muscles, like you're about to lift something heavy. And then as you breathe out, release the arms and let them settle. And finally, let's go to the face. We could also have stopped at the back and the neck, but I'm just going to go directly to the face. And as you breathe in, clench your jaw, tighten, squeeze your eyes, furl your forehead, make a squinched, pinched face. And then as you breathe out, Relax the face and just let the jaw settle in an open position and your eyes settle in the eye sockets.
we'll just sit for a while in silence and try to cultivate a breath that feels really good in your body. You can have a breath where you feel the energy moving up the front of your body as you breathe in, and then as you breathe out, releases the shoulders, the chest, and then the belly, like waves coming to shore and retreating back out to the ocean. And it also should be a breath that feels pleasant. And while you're breathing this pleasant breath, hold in mind an image of yourself at a place that feels really safe and soothing. A beach a park, a mountain, a hammock, a comfortable room, a campsite, a travel destination,
Now at this point, if we'd like to practice some mindfulness of feelings, what I invite you to do is to visualize a situation in your life that commonly leads to some repetitive behavior. For example, many of us find ourselves binge eating, shopping, watching one too many episodes of disposable TV, fixated by social media on my dating, situations where we feel a sense of being alone or lonely. And that loneliness creates stress and that stress leads to the compulsive response to try to immediately alleviate the loneliness, to get rid of the loneliness. So visualize a situation where you're either stressed by overwork or lonely, too many demands. And it's a situation where you might commonly reach for food or your smartphone. And see if you can just feel the feelings in your body that precede the automatic reaction to consume. For most of us, it'll be when we visualize a situation where we feel alone, disconnected, or overwhelmed, or not taken care of by others. We'll notice this tightness in our belly, clenching or emptiness in our heart center, feeling of just bracing in the body, maybe tightening around the back of the neck, See if you can find the feeling that lies at the heart of whatever experiences are so uncomfortable you need to get rid of them. And rather than seeking out a behavior that gets rid of these feelings. Just learn to be with it. Breathe comfortably. Offer compassion, kindness to these feelings. Find spaces in the body around the loneliness or anger or sadness or grief and just relax those 
muscles and regions so that the areas that do feel pain are not overwhelming. And you can even add a visualization of someone who you care about in your mind. Just training ourselves to be with feelings rather than running from them towards some behavior or activity. It's that craving to numb ourselves. And if there's another situation that leads to obsessive reliance on some compulsive behavior, maybe times in life where you feel overwhelmed, friends don't return calls, stressed out by unmeetable demands at work or family. 
remember maybe just grieving, disappointing experiences or losses. And just see if you can once again create a soothing environment to hold these feelings rather than seek out something to numb ourselves, something to completely check out with. So at this point, I'm just going to invite you to let go of this practice and take your time 